This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. J. Pat Brown, the executive editor of Muckrock. Uh, these are the people behind, well... They do a lot of things, but you may recall the most recent declassification of CIA documents, something like 13 million pages, uh, many of these documents dating back to the sort of the early days of the Cold War uh, up into the 1970s, and uh, they they were about uh, UFO sightings. Also, the U.S. government funded remote viewing programs like Stargate. Uh, but before we get to uh, J-PAT... Brown, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Gibson Flying Guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson, uh, on the Rickenbacker Bass Guitar and Theremin, the enigmatic, idiosyncratic Albert Vinzel, and um, a bit of a remote viewer in his own uh, right, and finally on the Hammond B3, Ryan White. Uh, And gentlemen, I ask uh, all of you to direct your attention to the cigar box to my left here. In uh, studio at 70 Jefferson Avenue in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'm giving you the coordinates. All of you listening at home, it's time for What's in the Box, our weekly remote viewing uh, experiment. And if you'd like to take part, uh, you can uh, attempt to remote view the contents in this box. And I invite you to use the hashtag TCSRemote, hashtag TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show. Remote, TCS Remote. And uh, there will be some Conspiracy Show merchandise shipped off to uh, one of you lucky uh, listeners who uh, comes closest to remote viewing what is in the box. And I'll, re- I'll do the reveal at uh, the bottom of the hour. All right. Well, it is, uh, it's Oscar night, and I didn't watch, and I have no intention. Uh, if I wanted to hear uh, people whinge and complain and talk about politics for five hours, I'd just tune into the Parliamentary Channel or C-SPAN. Uh, but I thought at least uh, that we could acknowledge Oscar Knight, and uh, I thought it might be fun to offer up some memorable movie dialogue throughout the night 
uh, to see if the Motley crew here, uh, namely Albert and Ryan, can correctly identify the movie after listening to the clip. And we'll play these throughout the evening. Uh, why don't we just test the system out here now uh, uh, to see if the Motley crew here... I'm uh, hearing myself in my head, headset, not sure why. Okay. So why don't we uh, fire off a clip? Albert, Ryan, pay attention. Greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There you go. Over to you, Ryan. Any idea? Uh, Hang on. There you go. I, I know what it is. You know what it is? Oh, yeah. Albert, do you know what it is? Well, it's a famous quote. Is it maybe Devil's Advocate with the Keanu Reeves? You're close. It, no, it's no. It's the usual suspects. That's right. Kevin Spacey. Very good. So that's what we'll do. Uh, that's how it'll work out. All right. Our little sop to, uh, to Oscar night and our, uh, our post-Oscar uh, show. All right. Um, so why don't we, uh, before we get to uh, JP, no, we're going to do what's in the box at the bottom of the hour. That's right. All right. So um, back in January of this year, you guys will remember, the, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, they published nearly 13 million pages of declassified files online. Uh, these were documents previously only available uh, from four computer terminals at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. You had to physically go down there. And uh, the records include info on Nazi war crimes, the Cuban Missile Crisis, UFO sightings, human telepathy, Project Stargate, for example, uh, and much more. And the release had been a long time coming. In fact, Bill Clinton first ordered all of these documents uh, declassified back in 1995, and the agency complied. However, anyone who wanted to access it, as I say, had to trek all the way down to the U.S. National Archives in Washington uh, or in Maryland, somewhere in Maryland, to get a peek. Uh, and then in 2014, a nonprofit journalism organization called Muckrock filed a Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, uh, a lawsuit pressing the CIA to post all of its documents online. But the agency said, because let's face it, there were something like 13 million, it would take up to six years to scan everything. Uh, and at the same time, journalist Mike Best crowdfunded more than $15,000 uh, to visit the archives to print out and then publicly upload the records one by one in order to sort of embarrass or apply pressure to the CIA because I guess they had to pay for the toner and the paper. Anyway, um, the, um, so now these 13 million records are available. They're online and... The CIA's information management director, Joseph Lambert, said access to this historically significant collection is no longer limited by geography. The agency was aiming to publish the documents by the end of 2017, but finished the work ahead of schedule. He said, we've been working on this for a very long time, and this is one of the things I wanted to make sure I, I got done before I left. Well, I'm not so sure uh, that this was uh, done without considerable prodding. However, we will uh, get to the bottom of that. J. Pat Brown is the executive editor of Muckrock. Muckrock, as I mentioned, is a nonprofit collaborative news site that brings together journalists, researchers, activists, and regular citizens to request, analyze, and share government documents, making politics more transparent and democracies more informed. J. Pat Brown. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, it was actually 26 years, not six. Did I say six years? Yeah, right. They, they, they said it was going to take 26 years to digitize everything, despite the fact they put the whole database together in five. Ah, all right. 
Now, um, let's begin with a bit of a primer on the, the origins of, of, uh, of Muckrock. Who started it? When? Who works there? Who funds it? That sort of thing. Sure. Uh, so Muckrock was founded back in 2010 by a guy named Michael Morrissey and Mitch Kotler. They were roommates over in Cornell. Um, and the whole idea was just to make – empower journalists to uh, have – the resources to tell the kind of stories they wanted to tell. I think that, you know, right now, especially in the United States, we're dealing with an all-time low in terms of lack of trust in the government and something dealing with primary source documents through FOIA is really the only way to get something that is unquestionably at least, if not true, at least hard to argue about the source. Right. So the idea about Buckrock was that it would take this incredibly complicated process and sort of simplify and streamline it. Um, and then... After people sort of in the, after that didn't really take off at the first, the journalism component basically was sort of almost virtue of necessity was the journalist using it to prove why this was an effective tool in the first place. And from there, sort of both the the archive and plat, uh, platform of what we do in terms of helping people file and then posting those documents and the actual journalism built around those docu uh, documents then sort of grew out of that. Um, now, I'm not sure I actually. I'm not sure how, how FOIA works in the United States, uh, and, and I um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it started with with Jimmy Carter back in uh, the, the mid '70s, right, or 1980, near the end of his term, maybe. It actually goes. So the original law was signed by Johnson uh -huh. um, in the '60s. It was pushed by uh, there was a senator in California, uh, Moss, who who really really wanted this. They had one in Sweden, and he wanted to essentially have an American version of it. But the very first one was completely toothless and really didn't right. have so any. So Carter put some teeth into it. Yeah, I mean Johnson didn't was was drag kicking and screaming or signing. Right, exactly. Uh, He'd be the last pers president I would think that would <laughs> would be lobbying for a freedom of information. Um, no, no, he, he hated it. Right. Um, but uh, then around the, uh, in the seventies, around Watergate, that's when you started to have the serious amendments to the law uh, that actually started to give it teeth. And so right around Jimmy Carter is when you started to have, I think, the, the, the stronger version of the law implemented that was actually capable of sort of, say, dragging the CIA into something they could lose. And so, you know, very basic, you know, basic idea is you can write, you know, write a request uh, for any existing documentation, and if there isn't one of nine reasons for why they can't give it to you, they have to give it to you. That's the basic theory. Um, as it stands, but obviously there are thousands upon thousands of ways around right. <laughs> right. either either delaying, overcharging, or just doing whatever is possible to, to, to make sure people don't actually physically get this. J. Pat um, Brown is with us, the executive editor of Muckrock, muckrock.com. Now, anyone can come to you uh, working, like you become sort of the go-to people because you've you you guys know your way around the whole FOIA process. So if a journalist say let's say he's working um, for another newspaper or another news agency, mm -hmm. would they come to you and say, "Hey, can you help me file this FOIA request?" Yeah. So we're uh, so anyone can use the system. We're actually about uh, a quarter of our users are journalists, um, researchers, um, another, and uh, but about half of the Half of them are just regular people who have like a question about the government and they don't know how to do this process. And we sort of have the whole thing streamlined. We have, right. we write, we 
create all the legal language they need. We have all the contact information. And most importantly, we keep track of every single communication that goes to get their documents released so that if an agency pushes and say, oh, well, you know, I asked for clarification, you never gave it, we can show them a timestamp code of when they, that happened. And right. so a lot of different news organizations, uh, particularly, you know, David Serrato over at uh, IBT uses us quite frequently. We work very closely with people at Vice, Wall Street Journal, a lot of different news organizations to not only getting the documents, but also publicly post them so that anyone can see them. And if anyone ever challenges you on the <laughs> on showing your work aspect, right. um, it's all there and anyone can uh, look through it. Okay. And the the government agencies that are covered by FOIA, all federal government agencies and departments, or does it is it state or, as well, or do they have their own individual state FOIAs? So, so at the federal level, uh, FOIA covers uh, everything except judicial and certain elements of the executive. So you can't FOIA the White House, and you can't FOIA, in, or sorry, uh, legislators. So you can't FOIA anyone in Congress. So you couldn't get a, um, a, 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 an internal cabinet memo, for example, through FOIA, unless it was shared with an agency that right. did. Okay. Yeah. And each state, in turn, has its own variation of this of the uh, FOIA law, uh, with you know fifty different names: free information law, right to know law. Um, you know, Sunshine Law in Florida, and each one of those is, you know, very different in terms of some agencies. Some, you know, like some governors aren't exempt. Some governors are. It's a right. whole like, uh, like hodgepodge. And so, it, what we also have on the site is a guide to each one of those states' laws, and also we track all of those specific exemptions. All right. The really, the, the frustrating thing that we deal with is there's just unfortunately no. There's no cohesion. You know, something that's true right. in one place is not going to be true, you know, two states over, despite there being no rhyme or reason why. We're going to head into a, a break uh, here, J. Pat Brown. And um, do I call you J. Pat or J. or what do you prefer? Uh, just J. Pat, yeah. J. Pat, excellent. All right, when we come back, I want to find out a little bit more about, for example, these uh, this latest CIA uh, dump, 13 million documents now available online. We can't say that they were recently declassified. They've always, well, they haven't always been, but they've been declassified, but now mm -hmm. they're, they're more accessible. Uh, and Absolutely. in large mar measure to, uh, to your FOIA request back in 2014, and of course, uh, the work of, I guess, Michael Best and sort of embarrassing Mike them. Best deserves a lot of credit, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, we'll... Um... What is it you want, Barry? Oh, I'm sorry, we're going to, my, my apologies, we're going to play another clip here, and let's, uh, let's throw it around the horn. Our little uh, memorable movie quotes here. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. There you go. Let's go quickly around the horn. Uh, Ryan? I don't, I don't know that one. Oops, sorry. Uh, go, go ahead. You don't no, know I don't one? know that one. I, right. I think I might have a, It's a Wonderful Life. Very good, Albert. <laughs> All right. Well done. It's okay. a communist film. <laughs> it's not a communist film. <laughs> the FBI put it, said it is. Really? <laughs> exactly in for you. Yeah, Frank Capra is a red? I had no idea. All right. <laughs> All right, let's uh, take a time out. We'll come back. J. Pat Brown from muckrock.com. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Coming up in the uh, next hour, the house whisperer, Scott Harris. He builds these um, echo-friendly homes for people like uh, Kevin Costner and Egg Egg Begley Jr. Maybe you've seen the web series on Begley Street, uh, which sort of follows the uh, travails of Ed Begley Jr. and his uh, wife, Rachel, building this. uh, It's it's billed as the greenest home in America. Uh, So Scott uh, Harris will join us. In the next hour, right now, J. Pat Brown is with us, executive editor from muckrock.com. And, um, well, they file Freedom of Information Acts or, or uh, lawsuits in order to, to, uh, to get ga- government uh, documents declassified. Let's just uh, play another little Hollywood memorable movie clip here. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't win an Oscar, I'll tell you that much. Ryan, what's that from? I, I know that one for You know sure. that one? Albert, do you want to take a try? I'm stumped to write Ryan's. It's this. Billy Madison. That's right, my friend. All right. Let's get back to uh, J. Pat Brown. Um, the, uh, the, um, the government department that um, mm-hmm. is most likely uh, to receive a FOIA request, would it be something like the Pentagon or what would it be? So every every agency has its own FOIA office that specifically handles FOIAs. Um, so there's inside the Pentagon, there's about six or seven different FOIA offices All right. um, that each handle different types of requests. Okay, and um, in your experience, which which um, which agency or government department are, are oh is the most popular? Yes, receive the most requests. Right. Uh, yeah, the FBI by far. The they're, FBI. They're, okay. Yeah, they receive. To, to be, they receive hundreds of thousands of them a year. All right. Now, um, I, in the course of doing doing this program, I talk to a lot of researchers like yourself, and they are um, involved in these FOIA requests. And my gosh, I mean, they probably haven't perfected it the way that you have, uh, but they they talk about you know the time that they put into this oh, yeah. and what they end up getting back after, you know, it may take years, is this heavily redacted <laughs> piece of paper that's practically useless. Um, I mean, how effective is it? I mean, uh, does FOIA work? Are you getting the information you need or is it, or are government agencies basically dancing around the law? It's, it's frustrating because it's, you know, and a lot of what we do by talking about the subject is complain about those kind of stories where, you know, we wait for years and then uh, you never get anything back. But I think, I, I think FOIA is not a good journalism tool in terms of being able to tell a story quickly and effectively, but it's a good historical tool in terms of if you have the time and energy, you can really get amazing stuff. And I think that you know, talking about Mike Best, he's somebody who's been filing extensively around Watergate history, and I think you know he's been in, managed to find comprehensive proof about how much the FBI has you know knew uh, about participants and what was going on through FOIA by connecting the dots and being able to have the luxury of put it, putting everything together. So I think. Yes, there's going to be tons of government pushback, and a lot of stuff is buried in those black boxes. But at the same token, if you look at like major stories, both in terms of long-term research and even just 
stuff breaking in the last couple of years, a lot of that came through FOIA. So I don't think it, it – on one hand, yes, it's broken, but I think it also does a lot a damn good job for something that's broken. And the uh, the 13 million that were made publicly uh, made public online, uh, and mm-hmm. again, you launched the uh, the FOIA request back in – or the lawsuit, we should say, back in 2014 to, to, mm-hmm. to get the CIA to release uh, these documents. Um have you had a, a chance to go through any of those? And, and if so, anything in particular that jumped out at you, whether that was the Yuri oh. Geller and Stargate or any of the UFO stuff? Well, so we run a, a project actually called The Rest of Crest, where just once a day we publish a new article from based off the Crest archive. Um, and there's been all sorts of stuff from, uh, you know, you talk about the the you know the one we did recently was about the NSA uh, basically worried that the Soviets were going to send, use a weaponized version of the psychokinesis to essentially psychically wipe out cities. Right. So they started worrying about how they could find ways to psychically nuke-proof cities. Um, there's names of all of the uh, people on the CIA's private press pool. You know, you've got um, these you know. Uh, <laughs> we found a, like a fudge recipe in there that happened to belong to the director's son, so we had it classified. So, <laughs> I mean, you get all sorts of stuff from like the fairly serious to right. um, just you know a lot. I mean, a lot of the things that we sort of lean on them is a lot of these things shouldn't have been classified at all. Uh, you know, there's a beer uh, from uh, one of the, the ones we found is a, an agency director saying, you know, thanking thanking for a gift of a case of beer he got, but the name of the case of beer is redacted because they don't want it to be, like, reveal a secret source. Right, <laughs> right. Every president, um, you know, campaigns on more openness, more transparency. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was President Obama's uh, promise. And uh, mm-hmm. but, but many critics say probably no more a secretive administration since Nixon. So what's going well, on? Why do we, why is it progressively sort of getting... Worse, if I can use that term. No, you you can. I think that it's really an issue because when I think the the key thing there is when Obama said he was going to run the most transparent uh, administration in history. What he meant is he's going to release the most amount of data. He didn't mean he was going to release the information people want to see. (laughs) If you think about it, and that's the thing is like this has been a real. There's been a big fight in sort of the open government versus sort of open data community. Because the government really wants to push open data, which are these portals that say, here's how many dollars we spent on, like, on traffic signals in this year. And this sort of useless information that they feel meets their criteria of them being open and transparent. Right. But we don't want to know about traffic lights. We want to know about Area 51, right? And that's the thing is that you're never – like, it's based on this, this, this false idea that all information releases of equal value – and so when they say, well, why didn't you tell us about, say, this phone tapping program? They're like, because we told you about the lamppost. Why are we still doing this? And I think that's kind of the frustration, which is that, you know, for a lot of, and this is, you see this a lot, especially in the United States and the local level, a lot of, of incredibly secretive organizations, like, you know, like governments will just frustratingly point you to some horrible, unupdated site from 2014 and be like, that should have all the information you want. And I think that's the idea. Is that it's all it's if if they feel like they're giving you that like information, they don't really care about what the information is. And I think that's the sense is that if you can shift people towards voluntary disclosure of what they want you to be like, you want you to know, and then away from these sort of things that empower you to involuntarily get information you want, then 
go for it. And I think that's been the dictum for the last 20 years. Right. J. Pat Brown is with us, the executive editor of MuckRock, MuckRock.com, the website. And if, uh, if you wanted to find out whether you were being surveilled by the FBI, whether they had a file on you, uh, mm-hmm. would you be able to find that out? Yes, you would have to file a Privacy Act with the FBI, a uh, Privacy Act request. And you could basically send them um, – you have to fill out a waiver saying that you're, you are the person you're saying – if I wanted to get, I can't get the, I can't get. So basically, until um, in order to get a file on an individual, you either need their permission or they need to be dead. That's why you file for so many dead celebrities. Um, if you yourself want to learn about you, you basically sign an affidavit proving that you're that person, and you send it to the FBI, and then they have to actually run a check to make sure if there's any releasable information about you. Um, they don't wouldn't mention if you're on like a secret watch list, um, but other than that, anything that's on. Anything that's, that's, that they have, any file they have about information, they do have to hand that over. Okay, so if James Jesus Angleton was tapping your phone, they're not going to tell you that? No, and actually that's the thing is if you tr- request anything from the CIA for any, requ- for any information on any individual, they'll usually give you back the infamous neither confirm nor deny. I actually did that once. I was asking for the files on Warren Zavon just because I wanted to have the CIA say they could neither confirm nor deny they have files on Warren Zavon. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, we all know about the, the FBI files on John Lennon, of course, but uh, oh, yeah. why why would the FBI do you susp- – are you just a big Warren Zevon fan or did you – do you have a hunch that they're – that they were actually <laughs> – No, I was just <laughs> – I was just a fun – I just – I know the way – this is the CIA, not the FBI. The FBI uh, – the CIA just – if you ask for any file on any individual, they'll say they can't tell you because that would reveal – they would then have to reveal the extent to which they are surveilling everybody. Right. That's their argument. Ah, Okay. So there was nothing particularly subversive about uh, Warren Zevon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the 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 uh, the rise of of WikiLeaks mm-hmm. has that made in many ways has that sort of surpassed or or made FOIA somewhat I don't know obsolete. Mm-hmm. No, I think that uh, I, I I think that if anything, it's actually sort of. Give, it's, it's been a, been a help for us because, one, we can just – it makes it easier to explain what we do to people who don't – we can say we're like illegal – like WikiLeaks. Um, but I think that there's always been a relationship between sort of leaks and FOIA, and I don't think one necessarily completely encloses the other because I think you're always going to have uh, – I think both serve purposes. Both you need to take with a grain of salt, um, and I think uh, – what what an interesting thing about us when we, when we're dealing with leaks, for example, is we someone comes to us and they say we have this important document, you know, and we, can you publish it? Our answer is no because we try to get do everything through this process to illustrate how effective it is. But if someone calls us up and says, "Hey, you should really ask for this," then we can follow up on that lead and use that to actually do a targeted search, and that's actually where we've had a lot of a lot of success. That's the key, isn't it? Knowing is, is having the wording and, and knowing the precise question to ask. So, for example, if I said, if I sent a, um, a FOIA to, uh, I don't know, the, the Pentagon or something and said, does Area 51 exist or, or do they have aliens at Area 51? I mean, unless the language is precise and I'm asking the, the right question, I'm not going to get the information I want, correct? How does that yeah. work? Yeah. So I think that there's a little – it's 
it, it's there's there tends to be a little, in my opinion, a little bit too much hang up on this in the community about getting the exact right language. There are certain things that you need to know as a baseline. You can't ask for documents that don't exist. If you wanted to say, you know, if you example said everything on aliens, that would either be way too comprehensive because it would be hundreds of thousands of pages, or they would have to actually generate a report that says do aliens exist? What, what you know, yes or no? And both of those technically don't fall under FOIA, so that's how that would be rejected. But by the same token, once you get the very once you limit it to documents that do exist of a rather you know that are not too voluminous, it doesn't need to be any more specific than that. I think that a lot of people spend like are obsessed about crafting the perfect language and making sure they search for any industry. But at the end of the day, you know you're dealing with another person who just basically wants to have an easy search term they can fill in and request. So my my only advice on that is that you have a question. You know, go ahead and ask it, um, and then from there, pair, you know, like work with them to try to find a better, the, the easiest way to get an answer from it. And and what are the nine? You said there were nine reasons where they can refuse mm-hmm. to release it to declassify a document. Um, as yeah. we head into a break, give us some of the top, say the top three or four of the nine. Sure. So the B one is national security. Um, uh, B six is the privacy accuracy one. That's the one you'll see the most. Uh, that's just you can't release someone's name or information. Uh, B7 is law enforcement, and that covers everything from tactics to uh, specific ongoing investigations. Um, B6 uh, or B5 is sort of internal communications and memos. This one gets abused a lot to basically hide stuff that doesn't really need to be hidden. Um, and B9 is uh, geolocations of wells, which is something we've never actually seen. <laughs> Um, someone used, but it actually came up in the WikiLeaks because someone saying that we need to like uh, it was when, when the DNC hack, they're saying one of these emails like we should bury this all under um, or no, is the Hillary's private server like we need to bury these emails under the B nine exemption because that just sounded like it was the most serious exemption they possibly could. But right, right. It actually means well. <laughs> all right, we're going to take another time out here. Before we do, let's play another memorable movie moment. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. All right, let's start with Albert. It's got me stumped again. Can you name the actor? Uh, No. (laughs) All right, Ryan? I want to guess The Graduate, but I'm not sure. No, no, it's not The Graduate. Oh, let's go. uh, JP, J-Pat. It's uh, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. That's Gene Wilder. Very good. Very good. We should send out some conspiracy show merch to J-Pat. We'll do that. We'll send him out a T-shirt. All right. Stay with us back with more of my conversation with the executive editor of Muckrock as we talk declassifying documents on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We'll get back to our conversation with the executive editor at Muckrock, J. Pat Brown, in just a moment. Uh, we're going to reveal our What's in the Box remote viewing experiment in just a moment here. Let's uh, do another memorable movie clip, Ian. 
Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. All right, Albert. Shawshank Redemption. Excellent, sir. Well done. All right. So uh, it's time to reveal what's in the box. Albert, uh, utilizing your remote viewing protocol, what do you think? I, I'm afraid I may have to disqualify myself this week. I, I saw a glimpse of it when I was setting up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, right. I, I can give a hint, though. You, no, you, no, 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 no hints. <laughs> no hints. All right. Ryan? No, I mean, I can kind of see a small glimpse of it as well from over here, so... Oh, dear. we got to do a better job closing this. All right, closing the lid. All right, I'm going to disqualify you both, and we're going to go into uh, the Twitter feed here. Those people that use the hashtag TCS remote. Uh, Mojo Family, Lipstick. Uh, that's um, Mrs. Mojo Family. Mr. Mojo Family is guessing uh, baseball, and uh, they're saying hello from Colorado. Well, hello to all of you. Um... Kevin B., a black silver plastic spring. Very precise, but uh, no, sir. Uh, and then we have Tom Kruger, a coffee mug. Ross Moore, a black comb. And uh, let's see, here we are. Amanda Curran, an Oscar. An Oscar, you say? Well, how about that? There it is. It's not exactly an Oscar. It's a Donnie. I received that. Top student, Centennial College, 1992. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Congratulations, uh, congratulations, Amanda. And we will uh, send you out uh, some Conspiracy Show merch. All right. Back to uh, J. Pat Brown. Thanks for your patience, J. J. Pat, we had uh, some things to take care of there. All right. So back to, um, to FOIA. Um, we were talking about, you know, how precise you need to be or whether it's necessary in terms of uh, constructing a question to send off uh, to a, a department and so forth. Um, that seems to be uh, one of the stumbling blocks up here in Canada, the researchers that I've talked to. Uh, I have a, um, a colleague who has been um, trying to get information out of the, uh, the uh, Department of Defense about uh, some, some strange lights that were seen by, uh, reported by some fighter pilots and so forth. And he really had to go back and forth, back and forth, until he sort of hit the right question. But perhaps the FOIA up here operates a little differently than down there. Uh, what are you working well, on? Re Sorry, go ahead. You wanted to, to it's, respond. It's interesting because it really it was UFO, uh, UFO researchers basically helps uh, sort of make uh, FOIA in the United States uh, based on the fact that um, they were sending requests related to sites like Area 51 and uh, they weren't running. They weren't even bothering to run searches, and they ended up actually suing them. Uh, to, you know, they they sued them under FOIA to basically say that you know we we sent these requests and uh, they're being rejected out of hand, and actually those lawsuits forced them to go back and actually <laughs> to run the searches. And those early um, those those early being dra dragged in the court in those first couple cases actually sort of spooked a couple agencies, and so now when you ask if they they actually hop to it. Um, Oh, that's good. Kudos to uh, our UFO researchers. Uh, what are you actively working on right now? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you're madly off in all directions, but can you give us a, a, a sense of some of the FOIA requests that you're working on that, that might be of interest to my audience? Uh, sure. Um, we're running the – actually just finished a, a piece that's running tomorrow about the CIA files on the Bilderberg Group. Um, then uh, – and what are they trying to find out? Whether they in fact exist and whether they meet? Uh, the, uh, oh no, they they actually have CIA agents who uh, or CIA people have attended the conferences. Um, 
they're uh, they have a uh, members. Uh, government members, high-ranking government officials who had not previously disclosed affiliation with the CIA, uh, who were there actually at the very first Bilderberg meeting. Hmm. Um, um, so that we're going tomorrow, um, doing, uh, so mo- most of my thing is on, uh, the FBI, um, and I'm actually <laughs> doing a piece on, uh, a plot to assassinate Margaret Thatcher that never happened. How, what do you mean, a plot that never happened? So uh, the FBI received a tip from one of their informants that he had overheard them talking about a plot to uh, – two, two Irish nationals talking about a plot to murder Margaret Thatcher during the next visit. And this sent the entire you know bureau into this massive mobilization to try to like find any evidence. And within a couple of days, they realized that they, didn't, they couldn't find any. Oh. Um, I mean, but, but they have to uh, act on that, right? They have to act on a – uh, on a tip like that, they absolutely do. But then they then they mobilized everybody to 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 find every single Irish group in their in their their local city, and then to interview them and try to find any evidence. Only to find out that basically they had trusted a source who apparently had just gotten drunk and misheard two people sitting next to him, um, and they actually um, wanted him to go under hypnosis to the the source who said this to see if he would <laughs> basically probe his subconscious and see if he was lying. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, how much? I mean, how much uh, information is is redacted simply because it's embarrassing to the agency? A, a fair amount. I mean, that's the thing about the the, the you mentioned the John Lennon files is uh, a lot of the st- the stuff that they refused to release was not because it was under any of this, these uh, uh, actual exemptions that made sense. It was just because they didn't want to say how much mon- money and net for effort they had spent. Um, a great example of this is uh, from a bunch of CIA um, records that were released to the National Security Archive, which is a great group based out of D.C. And uh, the, a lot of them were still uh, – a lot of them had large patches that were redacted under um, – B six, B five, you know, national security, national, uh, you know, national uh, internal communications, et cetera, and um, they fought back and appealed those rejections. And one of them turned out to have been a fake uh, memo about Santa Claus, <laughs> <laughs> um, basically warning CIA agents that they had seen strange lights around the North Pole and, <laughs> and to be to be alert of any sort of uh, you know uh, whether or not the the, the Soviets would go on. Uh, nuclear high alert if, if Santa tried to. Um, and they just didn't want to admit the fact that they had written this dumb little joke. Um, but the thing there is that you can fight them on those things and win, which is a positive. Is there anything uh, still lurking, uh, still yet to be declassified, regarding things as far back as the Kennedy assassination that are important, that have simply been overlooked? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Kennedy assassination, um, that goes, you know, going back to Clinton... Um, there, a lot of that, everything that was still classified is, was basically ordered to be, um, uh, declassified and released, uh, by the end of this year. Um, now the CIA has appealed this the last time that their, their deadline was up. And so a lot of this stuff is still sitting in sort of limbo, but we're actually trying to work with a couple CIA researchers to sort of get ahead of the CIA and essentially sort of demand that they actually release the full archive of material now, uh, oh, this year. All right. So that, you, that should be a big release around October, theoretically. Excellent. That's good to know. We'll look for that. All right. Before we head into the break, let's get another memorable movie clip. Hey, Stella! 
All right. A classic. And uh, Ryan? Stump there. All right. Albert? On the waterfront? Close. It is Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah. Jay Pat? Uh, streetcar Named Desire. There yeah. you go. You're two for two, my friend. <laughs> All right. We'll take a time. We'll come back. Jay Pat Brown, Muck Rock, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ian, memorable movie moment, please. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> All right. Albert? It's uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Dr. Strangely. Very good. That, that's right. Peter Sellers, once again, playing multiple roles. You can't fight in here. It's the war room. <laughs> One of the greats. Uh, we'll get back to uh, J. Pat Brown in just a second. Uh, Albert, you had mentioned, because we played a clip earlier from It's a Wonderful Life, and you sent me this article from the Huffington Post. Did the FBI believe that, that It's a Wonderful Life was communist propaganda? And um, that's exactly right. A, um, 1947, the FBI had uh, believed that it was um, there was communist infiltration of the film. In a 1947 memo by the FBI, and this would have been, I guess, uh, declassified under FOIA, uh, to the director, D.M. Loud, D.M. Ladd, Communist Infiltration of the Motion Picture Industry. There is submitted herewith the running memorandum concerning communist infiltration of the motion picture picture industry, which has been brought up to date as of May 26, 1947. With regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life, redacted, stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. (laughs) All right, there you go. Uh, deep, um, we're talking with uh, J. Pat Brown from uh, Muckrock, and um, w- I-, I mentioned that that was likely a FOIA request. Do you remember when that that came out, um, J. Pat? Oh, uh, they, they the especially the popular <clears throat> things. The FBI sort of routinely declassifies and, pu- and publishes that one online. Uh, um, so it might have been through that. But I also know there's been sort of, uh, especially. A lot of stuff around the FBI, the FBI blacklisting uh, in Hollywood. Um, so it's probably, I'm, I'm guessing, it's probably released as, as part of those. That's where a lot of where my work specifically is, is uh, sort of the the history of of the FBI doing exactly that, sort right. of declaring things subversive and uh, <laughs> a warrantless surveillance. What about what do you make of of um, claims that the FBI has? become incredibly politicized. I mean, we saw what happened with Comey towards the end of um, the last presidential election. Some said he was in the tank for the Democrats, and then he was in the tank for the Republicans. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, if you look back at the history, the FBI has always been very politicized. I think that, you know, Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, the first director, he sort of said that he was, he he doesn't really, he he was apolitical. But what he meant by that is that if you disagree with him, you were (laughs) anti-American. Right. So I think that, um, yeah, I think that there's the, 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 
the, the sort of the, the politicization of, of the FBI really, I think, is best understood in, in, in sort of context with uh, its rivalry with the CIA, which is that, you know, the CIA was always seen as sort of the more like educated, you know, like more sophisticated agency. And the FBI was the more, you know, like get their hands dirty, sort of like do the job necessary. And so that kind of sort of out, you know, like that reaches some sort of very, very simple conservative and uh, in, in progressive lines there, but both of them are warped so viciously. It's, it's not really politics anymore. It's more just who lets you do the job you want to do. And after the, well, now particularly with the CIA, uh, although some say we're heading into a new Cold War, but at the end of the last Cold War, mm-hmm. um, my my sense was that the CIA had to sort of reinvent themselves and figure out what is their role now uh, and it was suggested by a number of people on this program, and you've probably heard the same thing, that essentially they became uh, sort of a hired gun for corporate espionage, a mm. gun for hire. What do you make of that claim? Any any truth to that? Well, I think that there's. I think the business of America is business, and I think that that's the the the, the a lot of. It's very very hard to separate where. Uh, especially foreign interest and corporate interest overlap, and 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 where there's the the where they end. And I think that you know, in terms of, I think in, in many ways it's a lot simpler and a lot scarier than sort of them going to work for 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 corporations. As much as it is, there's just a very you know a very big revolving door between. As soon as you're done at the CIA, there's a private security fund that's happy to like hire you up and they've got these contracts and you can call your buddies at the CIA and see if they might help you. I think that's the 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 fact that there's so much money to be made by contracting. That's really where so much of this the 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 scary things start to happen is that you know there's you can take everything that you got as as through your extra legal statuses and the things you've learned and then apply that to the private sector and that gets a lot of people killed. I um, I receive I would say on average two letters a month or emails a month from people claiming that they are targeted individuals electronic harassment uh, yeah. they're being monitored surveilled and so forth and uh, in, in some cases it's it's quite evident from the the letter that these people are that some of these individuals are, are suffering from some mental health crisis although that doesn't rule out that they're not being uh-huh. surveilled but I'm wondering whether any of your FOIA requests have uncovered uh, anything that that has to do with a uh, a government sort of sponsored mind control program, and I'm not now talking about you know the mm-hmm. MK Ultra, um, which is sort of supposedly ended. You know that that was, mm-hmm. was was finished. But any ongoing type programs like this? Well, I will say we get a lot of those ourselves, and I think that uh, one of the you know, it, it, as you said, like, I think that the, the, the scary thing is even if people are dealing with mental illness, it doesn't necessarily mean that what that they, there aren't these kind of programs. I think Precisely. Saw, yes. Uh, I think that they saw that once there's a person who said, like, you know, I think there's a drone in my backyard and by their everything about their uh, their letter made it sense that they weren't completely there. But when we filed, it turns out, yeah, there was a drone in their backyard. <laughs> there's, there's just so much surveillance these days. It's <laughs> that, you know, the paranoid person is usually just picking up all the right details. Um, but in regards to whether or not there's actually an ongoing mind control program, I can tell you we haven't seen any evidence. However, if you look at the NSA's processing guides for how it handles FOIAs, 
um, if they actually have a whole section devoted towards this and sort of targeted energy and, and mind control. And if you just ask for a blanket request on, I want all your like files on touchless torture on in, on me, then they can sort of ignore that. But if you say, can you please search for all the different types of mind manipulation you've done, they actually do have to run that by a database of ongoing programs. So I wouldn't say that's necessarily proof that there is, but I do know they at least have to double check to make sure they haven't done something before. Right. But it would be easy to to refuse based on national security or one of the other eight reasons, right? Sure. But the fact that they even keep a list and then we can prove that the list exists, um, I think that's that's a lot of what – if you're not going to necessarily get the, the, the one document that will prove everything, but what you can do is sort of build this map of – this sort of mosaic of, of pieces of the truth so you can actually sort of reveal it that way, if that makes sense. Right. And is there a, um, a charge uh, um, for a FOIA request uh, other than above and beyond sort of an administrative or postage? Do they charge you? So they, so they don't uh, at the at the if you go directly through agencies, no. We charge because uh, we handle all the sort of administrative sure. costs, and we do that just to sort of make sure to sort of break even. Um, we're so we we keep it low so that anyone can do it, but not free so that people don't send you know thousands of vexatious requests. Right, exactly. But I'm talking about the agency that that you're requesting. Agency, well. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so they don't charge technically to just file, although there are some state agencies that require you to put a deposit. However, those, they, those administrative costs that come with uh, processing a FOIA, they can charge you for that, and those can get very, very high very quickly. Right. Um, the FBI, for example, charges $15 per CD when they uh, release really, uh, responsive documents. Like this is you know, like, a, like a record store in 1999. <laughs> um, uh, the biggest one we ever actually got once was uh, someone was requesting contracts from the Pentagon, and because they don't actually archive, they don't, they don't OCR, they're, 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 they don't digitize their contracts in a way that they can search them. They said that in order to find evidence, like uh, one contract, they would have to search through all of them, and that this would take uh, 15 million labor hours and cost us six, uh, $660 million. Oh, Lord. I, I bring this up because we're almost out of time here, but uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with David Politis, the uh, the author of this, the Missing 411 series of books, where he documents all these people that go missing, not only in national parks, but, I mean, these people vanish and under very strange circumstances. And um, he has uh, tried to uh, pry information out of the, the national parks uh, system for years mm-hmm. and uh, they just keep up you know keep throwing roadblocks at one point they said they don't they don't keep a list of people that go missing in their parks which just is beyond mm-hmm. you know well, I logic just, i just did a, a piece on the uh, I, someone asked for uh, a copy of all the bio labs in the, in the united states that deal with the t- highest level of uh, of deadly pathogens um, and the CDC first tried to deny it on national security grounds and then later just admitted they don't actually keep a list. They don't have a list of the level five biolabs? Level four. Level four. Uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> that's that's which, the scary part. It's not necessarily what they tell you. Uh, it's what they don't know that's scary. Absolutely. Yes. It's. I think that – the, the scariest thing that we've uncovered under all these is not, is not, is not what they're doing, but what, <laughs> what they're not doing. 
Uh, J. Pat Brown, uh, keep up the good work. Um, Thank you. We need more journalists like you. Muckrock.com. And uh, is there a, a f- if people need to get a hold of you? Oh, incidentally, do you have to be an American citizen to file? You, f- uh, you, you There's no, no citizen restrictions on filing, so Canadians file away. Okay, so if a Canadian researcher up here wanted to file a FOIA and they wanted to get a hold mm-hmm. of you, they just go through muckrock.com? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can shoot me an email at jpat at muckrock um, or just contact us through the site at info at muckrock.com. Excellent. A real pleasure. We'll have to do this again. Yeah, thanks for having me. J. Pat Brown, muckrock.com. My website, strangeplanet.ca, that's the landing page. And from there, you can go to the radio page or the TV page. Don't forget the TV uh, website, theconspiracyshow.com. Still airing uh, past episodes on Vision TV across Canada. And uh, check out the merchandise store, online store, theconspiracyshow.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM, here in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. Hi to all of you tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations. Uh, The podcast, of course, at Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. The uh, Conspiracy Show app and the Zoomer Radio app, both free downloads. Those of you streaming us live on YouTube, hello, hello, hello. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. The House Whisperer, we're calling him that, the House Whisperer, Scott Harris, is standing by. He designs and constructs eco-friendly homes for people like Kevin Costner, Kevin James, Ed Begley Jr., Neil Patrick Harris... Um, he'll be with us momentarily. Ian Robertson is on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and turning the dials. Albert and Ryan are here in studio with me. Welcome to our uh, little after Oscars party. Uh, we've been playing some memorable movie clips uh, going into and coming out of the breaks and uh, having some fun, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, not sure if um, you've seen the web series On Begley Street. I think they've produced three, maybe four seasons. Maybe they're three seasons. But anyway, the, the series follows the, the escapades of uh, actor Ed Begley Jr. and his wife, uh, I think it's Rachel, as they uh, construct America's greenest home. Well, the builder of the uh, super green Begley home joins me now. Scott Harris is the co-founder and COO of Building Construction Group. He's one of Los Angeles's foremost building general contractors and go-to experts for residential and commercial properties specializing in environmental green renovation, deconstruction, reconstruction, restoration, and innovation. His list of clientele includes billionaires and celebrities, I mentioned uh, uh, Kevin James, Kevin Costner, uh, Neil Patrick, the Sultan of uh, Brunei, uh, Savoy Hotel in London, and uh, San Francisco's St. Francis Hotel, and also restaurants for Gordon Ramsay. 
And as I mentioned, Ed Beg- Begley Jr., who uh, creating an elite, jaw-dropping, creme de la creme estates all over the uh, Southern California, I guess, and elsewhere. Scott, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? Very well. Uh, from time to time here on uh, the program, we like to talk about uh, green energy. And, and uh, last week, for example, I spoke with two gentlemen uh, from Kohilo Wind Turbines in, in uh, western New York, and they're developing or they have developed a very unique hybrid vertical axis turbine system. Um, and eco-friendly home certainly is something I think we can all get on board with, not just in terms of uh, construct uh, or con- conservation of, of energy and, and, and reducing air pollution and so forth. But people don't often stop and think about um, even inside a brand new home, you lay down the nice carpeting and everything and, and uh, you bring in the furniture. All of those things emit gases, toxic often, gases, yeah. right? Horrible things. The paint on the walls and, uh, and, and brand new carpet. It's, uh, you know, I often wonder all these allergies that never existed before, whether it's, it's just indoor pollution. And you're trying to address a lot of that with your, your construction materials, I'm guessing. We are. We're... Um you know, from somebody who had allergies his whole life and didn't understand why he had to live this way and finally understanding there's so many things that are in these homes and in these structures that we can change with the smallest little tweak that can forever change somebody's life. You know, it's a difference from a child sleeping through the night. It's a difference from your wife not being grumpy. It's a difference from getting a whole night's sleep. It's the minorest little changes and things we can do but unfortunately people don't always talk about it because my belief is that most contractors are a not aware and b the ones that are aware they don't want to make people aware because it's just makes people's lives harder and it makes their work a little bit more difficult so they're not talking about it and i I really appreciate the opportunity to have this talk with you to be able to, to discuss some of the things that can change people's lives. So are you only building eco-friendly type structures, or if someone wants to hire you and just do sort of a, a more traditional sort of brick and mortar with traditional building, you know, wooden frame structures, do you do that as well, or are you strictly eco-friendly? I, I never knew the difference. I, I've been doing this since I was a child, and I never really coined a phrase as eco-friendly or green or any of those items. It's, it's a way of life. It's a way of building something that's just a little bit better. And, you know, I, I appreciate that we now are starting to coin phrases and be able to put this into categories because I think that's the beginning of awareness in which people can start to understand there's, uh, there's ways to change things. But, no, we do the brick and the mortar. I mean, i got to be honest. We have clients that are – they don't care about those, those things. They don't understand them. So – the surprise they get is that we're building it into those homes for them without them knowing it. And then you have people like Ed Begley that just, you know, he jumps up and down every day and says, Scott, I've never been happier in my life. I appreciate this, you know, every moment I'm here. So um, we don't discriminate, but we still try to put a certain level of health and education into every home that we build. So so tell me about Ed, Ed Begley Jr.'s uh, and, and his wife. It's Rachel, I believe. Uh, uh, it's actually Rochelle. Rochelle, I'm sorry. Uh, tell me about their home. Why is it billed as the greenest home in America? What makes it so green? Uh, you know, it's 
to be honest, CBS is the one that called us the greenest home in America. So, um, <laughs> what, but what makes it more green? And I, I don't even, I hesitate to use that term because somebody asked me, "Are you a green builder?" And I said, "You know, I actually like to see all the colors in the spectrum, not just green." Right. Um, but what makes this home different is that what we've done is we've had somebody like Ed Begley, who is just a, a shepherd for the industry, who came to us and said, what would it take? How can I make a home that, number one, makes my wife happy? Number two, makes me happy. Number three is affordable. So what, here's some of the things that we did for him. You know, there's some of the obvious things like the house is self-supporting with solar um, we have a rain catchment tank that um, can, in two one-inch rainfalls can collect 10,000 gallons of rain. We built the walls 12 inches thick, so they're thermally, with thermally broken um, shells. We built in every way possible. We went and researched, and I'm, I'm slightly ashamed, as I am equally proud, to say this house took nearly five years to create, and it's because we went on a journey to do something different. Um, we have... Every, nearly every one of the items in that house we researched, we thought, is there a better way? Is there a different way? And so that's what the house encompasses is just unique things in there. So you mentioned the thickness of the wall. So does it re- – well, it's in California, right? Yeah. So it doesn't requ- – it, I mean, well, I suppose in the winter it can get kind of cool even there. But so it, does it require any heating or air conditioning? Uh it does. I mean, look, we're, we're in California. It gets hot. But what, what the 12-inch walls do is what they what we did is it creates – it does two things. It makes the husband and the wife happy. <laughs> it makes the wife happy, which is Rochelle, who's amazing, because it gives this 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 sense of, uh, of timelessness by having the thicker walls. So it's just a beautiful look when you inset the windows. But it also, for someone like Ed – it allows us to put an air break and it allows us to do a thermal insulation in the walls that is kind of, that would be otherwise unheard of. So to answer your question, yes. Um, but here's what's great. My favorite moment, I got to say, one of my happiest moments in my life besides getting married and having my kids were going over on one of the hottest days in California. And what I see is they've got these air conditioning units running. But the best part is that they're running off of the power of the sun. So we have, th- we have a, solar panels on top of the roof photovoltaic panels are basically powering the air conditioners and they're not running off of the grid then here's something unique that we did Um, i learned when i was doing kevin james house that one day he came home he was going to see the lakers and uh, as we were in the process of remodeling the home we had cut the condensate line if you know what that is on the air conditioning units right the condensation the water typically you run it sometimes into a, a drain in the basement yeah. Do you have any idea how much water comes out of those? Uh, in a, if the air conditioner is running steady, I don't know, what, maybe 10 gallons a day? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Three to five to 10 gallons a day. Wow. That's a huge yeah. amount of clear, perfect sure. water. Sure. So in a, what, what happens is people don't realize that that water has just been going down to the drain. So one day what happens is we're working in, in uh, Kevin James' house. They cut, we cut the line because we're remodeling. His wife comes home and says, Oh, my God, you're not going to believe what happened. There was a flood here. Well, what we figured out is that Kevin turned on the air conditioning unit, and boom, there goes 10 gallons of water overnight and flooded the the, uh, kitchen. So that kind of gave me that aha moment. So when we were doing Ed's house, I thought, God, I know what I'm going to do. So being that we were collecting all the water and we're trying to make it the greenest house in America, or at least on the journey of that, 
being that he has rainwater tanks, we took all of the condensate lines from his air conditioning units and we ran them into floor sinks that then go by gravity into the um, rain tank. So in other words, what you have is like this perfect system in which on a day when it's 107 degrees outside, you're getting the most amount of uh, solar energy that you've, you would normally get. It's powering all the air conditioners. It's, it's cooling off the house inside. And it's not only cooling it, but it's dehumidifying the house. So all the water that it's pulling out that's making you uncomfortable and cranky, it's now collecting that. And instead of it just going down the drain, I have that going into the rainwater tanks, which then is being powered by the, the pumps, which are solar paneled, solar powered, and then it's actually feeding the Ed's garden. So it's one of those moments you just sit there and you just feel like Zen and there's an aura and you're like, I've done it. God, why aren't people living like this every day? Precisely. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a simple thing to do. Scott Harris is uh, with us, and uh, we are talking about uh, construction, reconstruction, uh, renovation, eco-friendly houses, although he doesn't necessarily use that word for him. It's just a way of life. All right, we'll head into a break. Here's another memorable movie moment. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. All right, that one's a bit of an easy one because we used to play that on the program all the time. Uh, Ryan, any ideas? It's from Network. Very good, very good. And uh, Howard yeah. Beale. Thank you. All <laughs> right. Back with more of our conversation with uh, Scott, and we've got the whole gang here. Albert, Ryan, Ian. It's our little post-Oscar party. The Conspiracy Show returns right after this. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Scott Harris is with us, co-founder and COO of Building Construction Group. And uh, uh, a mutual uh, acquaintance friend, uh, Marina Anderson, who was on this program a couple weeks ago, uh, refers to you as the house whisperer. And um, she suggested that you have some intuitive, perhaps even psychic ability. Am I was I mis, misunderstanding, or is that true? No, that's true. I guess you psychically read that. Um, uh, <laughs> no, it, it's one of those. It's one of those things that I'm so appreciative to be able to talk about because I don't normally tell people about this, and this is honestly the first time I've ever been able to talk about it openly. I, I have this ability, um, and I think we all do. By the way, I'm not saying it's just me, but when I hear somebody talk, often what they're thinking or what I'm hearing is different than what they're saying. Um, Richard, I imagine that you're probably also highly intuitive as well, or you wouldn't be doing this, but and you probably understand. But I, I found that it's better to listen to what I'm 
hearing inside than what people are saying to me verbally. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, I, I believe that it had to do a lot with my success because what somebody tells you what they want is, is based on what they think they want. It's based on how they believe they want to be seen. It's believed uh, based on what they believe they want other people to see them as. And so taking a person's dreams and, and going a little bit deeper into somebody and listening to that is something that I do without question, you know. And I'll tell you, one of the hard things about it is you get a lot of resistance because the two don't always connect. So in other words, what somebody feels inside, what somebody is saying to you in a, in a different voice, never matches what they're really saying to you and what they're believing consciously. So it's a hard road to toe, but I find that at the end, you know, I, I get these clients that just have these cathartic emotions at the end and just cry to you saying, how did you know? And it's, it's, it's not, how did you know? It was always knowing. Right. Um, and so I believe that's one of the things that have made this company and what I do successful and, I, coming from a, a place of not being happy in my own home, never understanding why uh, people can't be happier, I strive to just find that, that vision inside somebody's soul and bring it out and make it tangible for them. Well, that's certainly a, a, a special gift to have for someone who you know, t- designs and builds uh, something that is, you know, is supposed to be really a reflection of, of that person. Right, um, and so often we don't we don't think about that. It's just a a place, as George Carlin used to say, a place to place our to, a place to put our stuff, and you know you lock it up so you can go out and buy more stuff. Uh, but but uh, you know I think we all want our home to be a reflection of who we are and so forth. So to have that ability, to have that uh, intuitive ability to to know what people want, even if they can't communicate it, that's that's a remarkable gift. Um, I want to get back to. Um, some of the other issues revolving around uh, making a house more sort of eco-friendly. And to me, you know, they're talking about reducing carbon footprints and so forth and and building structures. This is the low-hanging fruit. I mean, if we could could make all of our uh, buildings far more efficient, I mean, I think we'd be a lot, we'd go a long way to solving uh, the the, the problem. and I don't know, it, to me, it seems like a no-brainer. Not just houses, but, but all buildings. So They're so inefficient. Um, and, uh, I mean, what's, what's happening? What's the latest in terms of retrofitting um, not just homes but buildings? Is there a big movement in California, in the United States? Uh, is there a, um, uh, I think it's called the, is it the platinum level? For uh, for efficiency in in, in 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 homes, yeah, the United States Green Building Council created a uh, a designation of certain levels. They call it, um, and you have you can go lead, which is leadership and energy and efficiency and design, which is you start out with silver, you have gold, and then ultimately you hit platinum. So we hit platinum for Ed, and it's a series of um, goals that one needs to hit. Uh, that it's not only it's, it's what's interesting about this. It's beyond, as you said, efficiency, but also a lot of it has to be do with community. As far as how close you are to your community, how close, what kind of materials you're using, and in addition to that, it also has to do with 
um, health. And that, I mean, I'm going to tell you one of the things that I love in there. I, I was able to, we were able to get, I believe, one point towards our, out of our hundred for being able to have a designated area where Ed and Rochelle take their shoes off because that tracks dirt into the house. Hmm. So it's a beginning to make people a little bit more aware. Um, and it's a great movement in that sense. Well, up here in Canada, I mean, that's how you know you're in a Canadian home because all the shoes are piled at the door. That's just what we do. <laughs> you guys have the real mudroom there. We do, there, but, indeed. Um, um, yeah, but I... Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I wanted to talk about another uh, in terms of uh, what, what do you do with gray water? Uh, you know, laundry, laundry, bath water, that kind of stuff. How, do you re- Can you recycle that? What do you do with it? Yeah, absolutely. We um, So for... Begley and other projects, what we do is we have, uh, we recycle their gray water. We have a switch on there that basically, in the event that you want to use some, let's say you made your clothes a little dirty, right? You need to live. So you put some chlorine bleach in there. That's going to go out to the sewer. You can flip the switch when you're doing more clean stuff. And um, at the Begley's, for example, what we did is uh, all of that water goes into tanks underneath his uh, house. And, and then, it's all fed via gravity out to the uh, garden. It's not something that you're going to drink. It's not something you're going to clarify. But, you know, during the summertime, if you're going to take a shower and you're going to do your laundry and you're going to take a nice warm bath, why not feed the garden? Why not feed the oak trees? Why not feed those beautiful rose bushes uh, instead of using the municipal water? Right. And then so you're, you'd, if everyone got on board with that, you'd be dramatically reducing, you know, the amount of water that has to go back down to the water treatment plant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's very little water that actually is leaving the Begley house. I think Ed walks around making sure that people aren't turning on the water as much as possible. But he's got two two women in there. So he's, he's minorly successful, I believe. Um, but it's it's one of those things that makes sense. You know, when you realize how much resources are falling on top of your property however big it is big or small i mean you've got you've got the sun you've got wind you've got rain all of these things are sitting on your property and we just sit there blankly staring at it without having any understanding of what to do with it so we're trying to raise the awareness level of that um you know it last time i checked ed never got a bill from uh, sun power in america you know it's it's free energy it's like how do you not use this stuff when it's falling on your property and just watch it run down the street? He's he's totally off the grid. Uh, he was com- almost off the grid until he got his uh, electric vehicle. So Ed and I went outside to his electric panel. We do this for fun, and he turns everything on. He tells Rochelle to turn on the hair dryer. We get all the air conditioners rolling, and he's like, "Scott, we're doing it. We're we're still running net zero. We're negative. We're negative. I'm feeding back to the grid. We're good. We're good." Then he plugs in the, the Nissan Leaf, and he goes, we're not perfect anymore. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but, you know, he actually plugs it in at night, so it's it's working. But, um, you know, it's I, I don't know if, if we're a society that's developed enough to be completely off the grid, but it's about as off the grid as you're going to get. Right, right. I mean, to me, that is that is where we have to go. When we talk about uh, how fragile, how vulnerable the power grid system is, not from just um you know uh, an EMP from you know from the North Koreans or whatever but from a solar flare uh decentralizing the delivery of of electricity that's that's simply the way we have to go and if you can put a a, a wind turbine on your property you know not these 200 300 foot towers that we see on the wind farms but for example these guys down in in western new york that have this it's a vertical axis uh, hybrid 
uh, all the moving parts are, are inside a housing. There's no moving parts. You know, you're not going to kill any songbirds that way. They're lightweight. Right. They're stackable. You know, one of those for $15,000 produces enough to power a house. Absolutely. And the other thing that I, I really wish people can start to learn more about is geothermal heating and cooling. Yes. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a pot where you actually have, you know, where the hot rocks are close enough, you can actually derive power from that. You can be completely off of the grid. Um, we're talking about possibly um, we're working with the mayors in the Hawaiian Islands right now to help them get off of the grid completely. Um, I don't know if you know this, but one of the biggest um, housing problems and actually homeless problems are actually in the Hawaiian Islands. Um, I didn't know so, that. No. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but what everyone's been doing is, in the United States is they ship the people free with a one-way ticket to Hawaii. You think it's paradise, but it's not. So on the other side of that hotel, you've got a homeless person living there. So they've got one of the biggest collections of homeless people uh, in the United States now currently. And so they're reaching out and trying to figure out a solution. You know, and for every breakdown, there's always a breakthrough, right? Sure, so, sure. Uh, and the problem that they have is is obviously creating electricity. And so being that they're on a thermal mass there, with geothermal cooling, heating and cooling energy, you can actually completely take an area and put it completely off of the grid and create a housing community for people that um, are self-sustaining. And so while it's easier to do there, it's something that's very simple to do for communities. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, we're always looking upward, right? You know, we're looking at the sun. We're looking, as you said, the wind. We're looking at the water. But we're sitting on this massive earth that's and I don't mean massive, but I mean a mass of Earth, M-A-S-S, where the, we're still, the Earth is still cooling from its creation. And you've got all of this heat and thermal power that's sitting beneath our feet that we just left untouched all these years. And just a few pipes in the ground is enough to, to start to power the Earth off of those. Absolutely, yeah. Between geothermal, wind, and, and solar, there's no reason for, uh, you know, not to be off the grid. Uh, I want to talk to you about lighting. And I read recently, it was actually my, my mother-in-law uh, read this article, and she was talking about, you know, you're sitting in, in front of uh, a computer all day, and you have all of this artificial light, and, and what that does to you, uh, not only emotionally, but also it ages you. It ages your appearance, uh, the artificial light. And um, so... What are you doing in terms of, of lighting? Everyone's talking about LED. You've got to go LED. The, the cost, the, the energy savings are incredible. Where do you stand on LED? I, I'm, you know, LED is, a, is, a, is not the ultimate solution. It's, a, it's, one of the, it's like version 1.7 in lighting. You know, we took a light bulb and we said, hey, let's take a lot of electricity and let's force it something through that's too small. Let's heat it up and see what happens. Oh, wow, it gets really hot and bright. There, that, that was nice. Um, but here's something that's interesting about LED and um, that I don't think anyone's really talking about. Um, and I, I, I may be the first person to actually bring this up, and I may need some, uh, some bodyguards after this, but <laughs> I don't believe that the LED lights, as they're created, are really as energy efficient as people are claiming them to be uh-huh. or as the industry. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I'm a regular guy, or as regular as they come for a builder, right? So here's, here's, here's something that happens on one of them, the real-life situation. Let's go put some LED bulbs in a house. Great. Here's what I did. I said, you know what? I want to test these LED bulbs to make sure they work before I close at the ceiling. So I hooked them up to a, 
500 watt uh, light switch. I've got a lot of 14 watt bulbs in there. I thought, God, this is no problem, right? Turn on the light switch, and you you won't believe what happened, Richard. The thing just blew up. It smoked. Wow. I thought, wow, that's God. That's really weird, right? Must be a bad switch. Guys, get another switch. Let's try it again. I tried it again. Boom. The thing popped again. That can't be right. I've got the, when I add up the watts and I look at the switch, it should never make that happen. Well, I put a thousand watt switch in there. It didn't have a problem. And it woke me up that day. I thought, is it possible? Is it probable that these lights, while they tell you what the wattages that they're using are actually drawing more power? And so I started looking at the light fixture itself. And I don't know, you've seen LED uh, retrofit fixtures, have you? Not? Sure. Yes, I have. Yes. And have you ever noticed that a number of them have these fins around them on some of these uh, apertures or the, the units have like a series of heat sinks or fins around them? Uh, I can't say that I, that I have. Okay. Well, if you look at them next time, you'll, you'll probably, now that you know what you're looking right, for. Right, right. So what I realized is that, you know, we, look, we all know that LED bulbs don't get hot, right? I right. Mean, you can touch them for hours. They're sure. cool. That's the whole point That's of it. That's why we put thought, them on the Christmas tree. Yeah, you can put them on a Christmas tree, you can put them up your nose, you can stick them on your face. I mean, they, you can touch them all day. They don't get hot. And I thought, wait a minute, why is it that all of my LED fixtures that I've been installing as a builder have these massive heat sinks on them? You know, and a heat sink is something that you see on on uh, your computers for your LED. You see them on your, um, if you ever had those those really cool amplifiers. You know what I mean by a heat sink, right? Right, all right. Little yeah, I think I know things. where you're going. I think I know where you're yeah. going. That's where all the, the energy's going. Correct. And so it, it occurred to me, I, I realized, I kind of had this, wait a minute moment. Why do I have a heat sink on the back of this thing if this bulb is so cool? So I opened up one of these, and, you know, of course you find all these transistors and resistors and, mm-hmm. and circuit boards in there. And it's a pretty massive, you know, they call it the engine, right? The light engine. Right. So here's what I, I believe, and I'm just going to ask the question. If, if that LED bulb is cool, where does my 14 watts start? Does the 14 watts that I'm using, does it start after I've already taken up 35 or 40 watts of power because I've had to kick it down using these, these engines and resistors? Or does it actually happen as the amount of electricity that I'm drawing? Because when I look at these fixtures and I see a big heat sink, like the same thing that's on my wonderful, you know, amplifiers in the back of my air conditioners, something in that thing is drawing massive amounts of electricity. And I know from, you know, just from going to mediocre school that when you put electricity through something and you get resistance, electricity changes and it gets changes to heat, right? That's it. So, that's it. You know, energy is energy never changes. Energy is never lost. It only changes shape and form. So if I have a cold bulb and I've got a heat sink that's heating up to the point where I can't touch it, something tells me that there's a lot of energy that's getting dispersed and used before it ever made it to that bulb. There you go. It's and the so- LED lighting conspiracy. You heard it first right here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll take a time out before we do that. Another movie memorable moment. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. 
You are not cattle. You are men. There you go. That's a tough one. Ryan? Maybe the, the great dictator. Wow. Very impressive. Charlie Chaplin. Ryan. Very good. You knew that one too, didn't you, yeah. Albert? You were nodding your head. It's on YouTube. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and Scott Harris when we return. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Let's hit it again, Ian, another memorable movie moment. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. All right. Uh, Albert, I think, knows it. He gave me the thumbs no, up, Ryan. No? It's, a, it's an easy one. It's an easy one. Roddy Piper, they live. That's right. Yes, very good. Okay, back to uh, Scott Harris, co-founder and COO of Building Construction Group. And uh, you may have seen On Begley Street. It's a, it's a web series. Uh, what is it now, Scott? It's third season or fourth? Uh, I believe we filmed it for about three years. So, yeah, I would say probably three seasons. We did three seasons of it. Okay. And uh, it was billed as being the greenest house in America. Uh, we were talking about the uh, the LED lighting conspiracy. So LED lights, maybe not everything they're cracked up to be. And, you know, we get notices from uh, Hydro, uh, power, uh, the power utility here, uh, saying, yes, yeah, switch over to, uh, to LED. Uh, but that may not be the answer. So what is the answer in terms of lighting, do you believe? You know, I, I believe the answer to lighting is, number one, during the day is natural lighting. Number two, it's, it's conservation uh, you know, well, here's what drives me nuts, Richard. Is I, I go to someone's home and they tell me that they had a, uh, uh, they had a single. You know, I grew up in a house that had like a, a single light fixture in the middle of the room, and it was we had a 60 watt bulb, and I would turn it out. You know, my friends and family and clients they tell me, guess what? We got rid of the bulb and we put in 15 LED bulbs in here. We're green now. And even if let's just say face value, you start adding these up at 15 watts a bulb, they've well surpassed what that little, that 60-watt bulb is, people feel that um, just because they're used, the, it's got a little icon of, you know, uh, of some leaves or something, and it says if we're green, that they can use more of it. So I believe that the, the, the key is conservation. I mean, there's no reason that also that I believe that we need to live like in a sense that um, we're living in a surgery room. I think, as you said, that unnatural light can age you. You know, there's something to be said for actually having a dimmer light in the house. We don't need to live in this way. We weren't meant to live this way. We were left, we were, we, we've survived for eons living outside. And it's natural. The body needs time to be, be relaxed and, and have these lighting levels reduced. So I believe that you need to have more natural lighting in the house uh, with thermally efficient windows. But we don't need the level of lighting we have. You don't have to open your coat closet and have lights inside. I don't need to have a light on every single shelf when I just for, for fun. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's my personal belief. Dim the lights. Let's talk about uh, um, uh, construction material in terms of flooring. Um, 
I see where uh, particularly children that have allergies now, they're putting in cork, cork flooring. Another popular um, – and this has more to do with just because it's more sustainable because it grows very quickly, and that's bamboo. What kind of wood, wood, wood do you use for flooring? Uh, you know, we, we've been looking to – most of the wood that we try to use is reclaimed or recycled woods whenever possible. Um, it, it, there's no reason that you can't take something that was reused and clean it up a little bit and recycle it again. I can tell you here's like something we did for Ed's house. Every single one of the studs, every beam, every rafter, every every floor joist, we took it out, we denailed it. And we denail it because what happens is they can clean this wood up and they can reuse it again. There is so much wood and material on this earth, there's really no reason to start recreating from scratch again. Um, that's That's what my feeling is. And what about in terms of uh, staining uh, or or um, treating a wood? Because again, we were earlier on we were talking about all the gases that are that are emitted from from the paint on the wall, the carpets, the the varnish on the floor. How do you avoid that? So what we did at the Bedley's homes and some of our clients' homes is we are using hard waxes and oils. Um, there's something about letting a wood breathe, right? It's just it's natural. It's like being in nature. So what we did at the Bedley's home is we used a linseed oil mix, and then it has a wax on there. I mean, I will say the downside is that it forces you to take your shoes off because you've got a, a wax finish. But if you're using a polyurethane floor or anything, even even the water base or the, the even worse yet, the oil-based floors, those things are off-gassing for months. They're not breathing. Uh, there's something to be said for having a house breathable. You know, we... People spend so much time thinking that they have to seal every single crevice up of the house. And what that's doing to these people is they're actually suffocating themselves. They're slowly, we think that we're evolving by, by sealing every crack and gap in the house. And then what do we do? We put OSB, you know, down for the underneath for your underlayment. We're using all kinds of formaldehyde products and all kinds of paint. And you don't realize you're slowly suffocating yourself inside these homes. So whenever possible, if you can use natural materials, uh, that are not, you know, here, here's what I like to say. If it has more than five ingredients, it's probably not something that's good for you. <laughs> that's a good rule to live by. All right, well, uh, go into the break with another memorable movie moment. I mean, it's pretty hairy in there. It, it's Charlie's point. Charlie, don't surf. There you go. Charlie, don't surf. Ryan? No, I don't know it. Albert? I haven't seen this one either. All right. I bet Scott knows that one. Charlie, don't surf. Uh, I spent too much time building my life. I don't. I didn't really watch TV. <laughs> Apocalypse Now. That was Bobby Duvall. All right. We'll uh, head into a break. Come back. One more segment with Scott Harris, co-founder and CEO of Building Construction Group. Building Echo Homes, the greenest home in America, the Ed Begley Jr. Home. Back with more. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. From Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. One more, one more memorable movie moment. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Albert? 
I, I, I know it's a meme on the internet, but I, I can't think of the movie right now. <laughs> Ryan? It's from Taken. Yes. Liam Neeson, 2003. What are they up to? Taken 9 now? I'm not sure. All right, back to Scott Harris. And uh, we're talking about eco-friendly homes. You know, I was um, uh, trying to find this story online, and I, found, I finally, finally found it because we were talking about the Begley home and how he captures something like 10,000 gallons of, of rainwater. How long does it take him to capture that amount? Uh, well, in this last rainstorm, it would have taken two hours. Right. You can <laughs> capture... We we set up the Begley's home in a way that allows them to capture... He's got a very large roof deck uh, that's actually... It's interesting because from the street, it actually looks like a uh, a nice hip roof. So it just as it goes out of line of sight, it actually dips in, becomes a roof deck, and uh, captures not only the rain there, but it captures all the sun from the solar and the photovoltaic panels up there. Um, and then we have permeable hardscape, at which everything drains down into the rainwater tanks. So to answer your question, we can pick up um, in one inch of rainfall, we pick up 5,000 gallons. So two inches of rainfall, uh, you've got 10,000 gallons. You're set to go. That's remarkable. And I was just the article I was looking for, and I found it, that it's actually illegal in certain states to collect rainwater. Can you believe that? There was a man in Oregon back in 2012, rural Oregon. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail for illegally collecting rainwater on his property. What's going on? I mean, this seems that seems so Orwellian. I don't know. What, why is that, Scott? Why, are they, why would anyone object to people collecting rainwater? Well, there's two reasons. One, the municipalities make a lot of money off of it, so they kind of put them out of business quickly. But, I, you know, I think the, the, the reason that they're going to tell you about has to do more with, with health safety. Um, in California, specifically Los Angeles, I need to get... Um, the health department involved in it See, because you got to realize when you're storing 10,000 gallons of water and you're not filtering or you're storing that underground, you can be creating some pretty serious contaminants in there. So it's a, it's a series of checks and balances. There's uh, spinners and filters, gaskets. We have to go through all kinds of safety valves to make sure that um, if you install this thing incorrectly, you can actually have backflow and this thing could be flowing back into the house. Ah, okay. So, yeah. Now, uh, now that you say that, it makes know. sense. You can pretty quickly kill off a family of six, you know, if, if your husband thought he'd get creative and started trying to use some of that rainwater out there, thinking it's the purest thing ever, and it's, you know, it's got all these wonderful contaminants growing in there. So it's, uh, that's, I believe that's the main reason. Rather than building, if someone wanted to, rather than build a new house, they wanted to convert their existing inefficient um, build into a super eco-friendly house. What would what would what would they start with? How do they do that? Some of the things that you can do are um, air quality. You know, most of the homes are, that they're built today have, as you said, there's a lot of off-gassing in them. So you can, for a very little money, you can actually install a HEPA filter and have it attached inside one of your pre-existing air conditioning units or heating units. Um, you know, Another thing that you can do is, um, as far as, you know, most people don't have the money to be able to change out the doors and windows and such and so forth, but a lot of it is just, it has to do with air quality. People don't understand the difference. And I, if I can just tell you quickly, one of the biggest things that, that are affecting people, you know, as far as allergies and the off-gassing is most people don't realize that they're living with mold every day in their house because homes are not waterproof the way that they should be. And it's the simplest of things. If anyone's going to be remodeling their home or changing it, 
almost every home in America, and I'm sure probably throughout the United throughout the world, they put this thing called paper on the back of drywall. And if you and the way that you create mold is you put paper like a cellulose material. You put it in a dark area. You add just a little bit of water, and it's like gremlins, and it just explodes. And that is one of the things that most people are more sensitive to than anything, and everybody out there is living with it. So doing things like just changing that out. Uh, and here's Let me give you one of the simplest things to do. I see a mistake every day. Everybody likes to water their houses. I don't know why. They put the sprinklers. They put the plants. They put flowers around the house, and they don't understand that what they're doing is basically feeding this mold that's growing up inside their homes. So simplest thing anybody can do, change the sprinklers, put some gravel around the house, and your life's going to be 100 times better. So get the plants away from the house. Get the plants away from the house. It's not just the plants, but it's the sprinklers. It's the watering. Everybody waters around their house, and everything loves water that doesn't like the body. You know, termites love it, mold loves it, fungus loves it, insects love it. And people just sit there, and they don't realize, but they're feeding their house with all of these things that are just allowing these life forms to grow inside their house. They don't understand why they're, they're suddenly allergic to everything. And you walk around the house and you can see this little, you know, perpetual line where it's just kind of uh, someone's been watering in their house for years. Get the water away from the house and put it out in the yard. Ah, that's good to know. Good to know. What about carpeting? Uh, should we, I mean, that's a, is that a bygone era? Wall-to-wall carpeting, that was a big deal back in the 70s. I mean, that's just, that's just a, a a haven for for bacteria and and uh, not not to mention the off gassing. Uh, I mean, I I don't I cannot believe I cannot remember one time I've installed carpeting or allowed any of my customers installed carpeting for the past twenty years. I mean, talk about something. Let's take a mat of of, of uh, material that's made of polyester from petroleum based products. Let's let it off gas, stick it up straight, and see how many things can collect inside there. And let your kids and dogs run over this thing with your shoes. And see how you feel. It's, I mean, it's got to be the, the most unsanitary thing that you could possibly do in your house. You may as well look in bathroom floors, for God's sake, when <laughs> people are putting carpet in their house. I, I remember, I've been in houses that had shag carpeting in the bathroom, if you can believe it. Oh, I, I've taken it out. I, I, I believe it. And it's all crystallized, right? Oh, yeah. It's not pretty. It's not we pretty. have that in our house. We have that in our house. No, carpet is probably one of the most unsanitary things you can possibly have. You rip the carpet out. And watch your life change. And watch this big puff of smoke of something that you don't know that was great pop out as you shake the carpet out. What about tiles? Uh, tile is good in, in the sense that it's um, it's a cleanable, washable surface. You know, it depends. If you're using some Calicutta tile from, from Italy, I don't really like that idea of just sitting there taking all of the Earth's materials. But there's a lot of things you can do. I'll tell you what we did at Ed and Michelle's house. We took recycled glass um, tile. So in other words, all of this glass that we are disposing of, we reuse, they melt it down, and we made glass tiles. And glass doesn't have to be look like glass. It, you know, they put a little bit of a matte finish in there, and it can look like a nice porcelain or ceramic tile. It's it's just a, a no-brainer. It's not porous at all. It's it's easy clean. Uh, there's no off-gassing to it. And you're using materials that, uh, that otherwise were being thrown into the waste. How, um, how widespread uh, are these you know, principles that you utilize in new home construction in, in your area? I mean, is this something that you think should be um, in part sort of encoded into the, into the building code? You know, they're just starting to realize it now, um, but I don't think they fully grasp it enough to encode it correctly. 
uh, you know, give it 10 years, give it 15 years, give it 20 years, we'll start to evolve and understand. We're trying to be ahead of the game. I mean, if you look at the way homes were built, they're still built the way they were in the 20s. Take a home, take a home apart the way it was built in 1927, and I look at one today, they're really not that much different. We're fooling ourselves to believe that they're really different. You know, we change the colors, we change the aesthetic, we change the molding, take it off. It's still the same thing underneath. You know, and what's sad is we all believe that somehow we're doing better. Throw some LED bulbs in there and put a few things that are green and, you know, put a recycled mat at your door and you think you're doing better. So we're not seeing the evolution that I would like to see. Um, you know, I'm sure sometime when my kids are older, they'll finally say, Dad, I can't believe you guys used to live that way. It's just like the same way when, you know, I grew up, everyone thought it was okay to put lead in your paint and lead in your gas. You know, someday we'll realize in asbestos, God, that never worked out well. Remember Grandpa, he died early. Right. Well, that raises another issue. Um, you mentioned um, lead paint, but I wanted to, I, I wanted to ask you about Wi-Fi. And you know, uh, there are a lot of people that are electric are, are sensitive to electricity. They're sensitive to uh, to Wi-Fi. I mean, I know the scientists are sort of debating uh, this, but um, uh, EMF uh, is yeah. that a concern? Do you and do you uh, do you shield people from EMF in your construction? Yeah, so what we do is for the uh, – we try to, whenever possible, put the, the main panels uh, well away from the bedrooms or well away from, you know, at the other end of the house. Ideally, it's in the garage. You can't stop the EMF completely. So what we've done is we will do lead panels on the inside to absorb the energy. Um, and I, as bad as Wi-Fi is, I just don't believe, unfortunately, we better evolve or we're going to die because you just can't get away with from it. I mean, if I ever look at my phone, there's like 77 different Wi-Fi hotspots on the freeway, for God's sake. So, you know, it's you can't get away from it. But the EMF is extremely powerful. I have a, um, as part of being, you know, I don't know, intuitive or what I am, I can physically feel it uh, as far as an energy. So I can, it, I, I believe if I can feel it, then it's, it, not something that's really uh, good because what it's doing is it's changing your magnet. Your body is electromagnetic, as we, as you know. Yes. Probably most of your listeners know. I mean, you're basically a water and electromagnetic bio machine. And so go ahead and take a magnet to your body and watch, you know, put it on a computer and watch what happens. Do it to the body and see how well it's going to work. So when you're changing the magnetic pulses of the body through something that's unnatural, it's going to affect you. You know, in and do I believe it causes cancer? I don't think that that in itself causes cancer as much as it weakens the body and parts of the body that otherwise weren't normally working well. All of a sudden just go, ah, I'm done. Okay, you know what? Pancreas, I give up. I'm tired. I'm finished. You know, it's just you, it, it triggers the weak spots of someone's body when you're living in these unnatural states. And, you know, your wife, your grandma, your kids, things just happen that, that otherwise shouldn't be happening. I mean, if, if you recognize that we've spent – as a society, approximately 90% of our lives inside structures being, you know, your work, your home, inside a vehicle, all you're doing is ingesting off gases. We weren't meant to be living in this kind of, this kind of society. And, that, and then what you have is you, is you have hospitals and doctors that are able to pump you full of drugs and keep you alive a little bit longer to, suff- you know, to suffocate a little bit slower. But it's not natural. You know, the most natural thing you can do it's just step outside, open your doors, open your windows, let the light through, and, and stop living inside these structures. And if you're going to have to be in a structure, keep it natural, keep it easy, and just let the air and light flow through them. Yeah, we, we have to, to, to think, uh, or realize rather, that our, in many cases our houses are making us sick, or our places of work, our, our buildings are making us sick. 
Uh, and if for no other, and for if no for no other reason, I mean that's uh, a good reason to start thinking. You know, eco friendly, eco friendly construction, eco friendly building materials, and so forth. Um, so Ed Begley's uh, house is um, is finished, right? Yeah, it's, it's finished, and we just we just did this. Uh, I did a talk show on lifestyle uh, magazine. I think it's lifestyle.org. And um, I, I replayed, I got to hear, and Rochelle said the most beautiful thing. She said, she said, there's something about the air quality that's not even tangible. I can't explain it. When you come in there, you just, you can take a breath and you feel different. Uh, and I, I wish if you, if you ever come to, to L.A., Richard, I hope you can walk through one of our houses. And it's not something that you can just describe. It's just a feeling where you walk through and you go, Wow. I didn't know this could be this good. It's like the first time you tasted really a, your favorite cigar or a really good bottle of wine where you didn't have to kid yourself and pretend it wasn't good. So, um. Well, we should, we should all live that way. Uh, Scott, a delight uh, meeting you, and uh, thanks for this conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. It was great to talk to you, too. I appreciate it. Scott Harris, co-founder and COO of Building Construction Group, building eco-friendly houses for the stars. My thanks uh, to Ian, Albert, Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.